All right. Okay. Hello. The floor is open. The floor is open. The floor is right. open. Yeah. So to lay the uh, the groundwork, we're currently um, seated with one of my previous teachers, um, George, and uh, he taught both me and Zahasha, my co-host, um, in biology two years ago. Yes, two years two, ago. Two years ago, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago now, but um, we're going to sit down and have a chat to George about his, his life yeah, as a man of science and um, discuss a few of the topics of the day also. So, George, would you firstly introduce us to yourself and how you got into science and even maybe how you got into teaching to yes, start with? Yes, well, I, um, I was always interested in biology from watching videos of David Attenborough and uh, Jacques Cousteau. So marine Jacques. biology was always interesting to me. And then when I came over to Australia from Scotland... I got into science, did a science degree at uh, Sydney University. And uh, then I ended up majoring, a double major in zoology and botany. And then we did uh, an honours degree in uh, botany. And that was doing, uh, studying seaweed kelp. And then I went on from there to do a master's degree and while I was starting the master's degree, one of the areas that I was looking at was um, the intertidal communities around, um, there was an outfall, sewage outfall put in at Warrywood. Mm. A friend of mine was working on it. He's an environmental scientist. So I did a report on the distribution of organisms around the outfall. And um, then we just kept on monitoring that site that started in 1978. And so it piqued my curiosity as to what was going to happen to the communities with respect to the outfall. And so we uh, then just kept monitoring that area. Mm. And we also got involved with um, doing underwater research on kelp, Eclonia radiata, which is one of the kelps that gets washed up. So we set up underwater reefs using concrete besser blocks off the coast at Warrywood, mm. bolted them onto the bottom with ramset gun bolts. And the idea was to then uh, look at, um, they would form a habitat on the bottom of the ocean where sea urchins would move in and then the sea urchin community would then alter the surrounding kelp community. So that was really good. We used to do that every month in about 13 metres of water, which was good, until the storms came along, mm. and the storms smashed the whole lot up, oh. we never found it again. So so you were looking for the interaction of the sea urchin community, how it interacted with the kelp community? Yeah, because if you look at an area, if you're diving, you've got um, these big rocks, and under the rocks you've got sea urchins, yep. and then around that you have a short turf of brown algae, and I'll boat three metres out, then you get the big kelp communities. Okay. So you get these islands, and obviously, well, just from making observations, the reason why there's no kelp growing in close is because the sea urchins are grazing there. Because right. we also did some work at Fairlight where we put down um, colonisation plates on the sea floor and then put cages around them. We had uh, fully caged, and those, those were just three sides to stop the sea urchins getting in. Yeah. And uh, the results were amazing because it's 
you stop the sea urchins getting in, everything grows. Yeah, there's no competition. No competition. Yeah. So that's why we started playing around with doing it offshore, but it's too difficult to work um, on coastal areas because mm. of the, the swell. The swell just comes and smashes everything up. Yeah, seems and, like that. And you're sort of picking up some seaweed to measure it, and next minute you're three metres away still holding it, and there's only a two-metre swell running through the place uh. and such. And then, yeah, and then uh, we lost the bearings because the bearings were used to triangulate where we were. They were radio masts at North Head, and they pulled the bloody radio mast down, nah. so we couldn't find it again, and then the storm smashed it all up. So we decided to go and do something else. Right. Yeah, I remember um, when I first came to TAFE, and I was speaking to George, because we would always hang after... Um, the class and just talk about different things that I that we were both interested in or maybe something during the class that I wanted to ask George about um, and we spoke about his work uh, on the on the rock platforms at I think it was at North Narrabeen which you're still Narrabeen. participating in even maybe even now yeah collecting data for yeah we're still doing it I stopped last year so I'm trying to write it up now right get the it's paper going giving me a headache because <laughs> so, if you think of the number of replicates you get 10 replicates per site per each site has got three areas in it each area has 10 replicates and then you have three sites per platform then you yeah. get six platforms and you do 10 replicates per month over 12 months that's 120 replicates for one site and you've got about we've got about six or eight sites we've got 30 years worth of data wow. we've got this massive big database oh, that'd be which is giving huge. me a headache trying to sort of trying to pick the eyes out of it because some things are changing, some things don't change. So you're trying you're you're looking at the the distribution of organisms over yeah. each of those individual sites as they progress over yeah, time. Yeah, over time. Right. See, because there's no long term studies being done like that. Because all the studies are done for PhDs are usually two years or three years. Yeah. Then you write a paper on it. But that doesn't really show you the long term changes. Yeah right. And one of the interesting ones we've just found is since about 2015, on two of the platforms, one particular species of algae is just going ballistic now. It's really starting to increase in numbers. Really? So we're trying to see if we can work out, or I'm trying to figure out why that is happening. It's just, it's been sitting, nothing's been happening for 25 years, then all of a sudden it's just going Right. So that's interesting. So yeah, I, th I guess looking at like the distribution of organisms over a platform and the, the rock platform itself is you know subject to getting you know various tides and yeah. th then you can link between like that actual conditions of the ocean and like acidity and yeah which, acidity which or temperature whether it's whether it's um, sea level uh, whether it's uh, sea temperature rising I'm trying to get hold of some data on that because there's a professor up the north coast Brendan Keller he's working at um, He's working subtidally, and they're predicting with the rise in ocean temperatures this particular type of seaweed, which I'm finding is changing now. Mm. They're predicting that that's going to increase subtidally, sargassum. Right. So I've got a contact with him to see if he's got had any information on the stuff intertidally, which there doesn't seem to be any information on that at the moment. Right. So I'm just trying to figure out we've, we've got statistically valid data, mm. but then got to try and figure out what causes it. Yeah, right. Okay. Lots and lots of factors involved. Yeah. So... Headache material. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just picturing 30 years of data, data of multiple sites, and there's... <laughs> we're not talking about, like, 
three or four organisms per site. We're talking... 10, 15. Yeah, and that's when you multiply... Yes. That's ridiculous. I'm, I'm picturing just an Excel spreadsheet of like hundreds of thousands of data points and trying to find... Like there's one thing finding a correlation. There's another mm. thing finding causation. So that's you right. can have, oh, this is statistically valid because yeah. of, you know, there's no uncertainty mm. with the measurements. Yeah, that's right. But then like why is it happening and I have to do it for all these? Yeah, I know. It's really, really crazy, the whole thing. It's just, it's gone... Well, I have to work in with another guy who's he's involved in metadata analysis. Yep. So he's got. Um, I'm giving him the data. Yeah, so we're just picking out, picking three years here, three years there, three years there, three years there, and then just bunging it all together, yeah. and then throwing it into a variance analysis and to see what spits out. So uh, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, well, interesting. It's it's <laughs> still, it's exciting to see that you're still you know participating in active research oh yeah it's great and like obviously teaching and having such an influence on for example i think me and zahasha can both Mm. testify to the fact that like your um your passion for biology and your willingness to go the extra mile of teaching it really just initiated this scientific rigor in both of us and then to also be doing your own research simultaneously as like an accredited scientist is you're getting the influence on both the next generation and you're still affecting That's everyone true. else, which no, is just... I'm glad it's affecting you because it's, it's quite nice to have people who, who the penny drops with them from a scientific perspective and 100%. they can see the doors opening. Not so much doors, but the amount of information that's out there, which is really quite fascinating and it really is just mind-blowing, yeah. particularly this time in your life and my life at the time where there's so much research going on all around the place it's just mind-boggling it is what's going to happen in the next 10 15 years yeah. actually sort of thing well you, yeah you, you just look at every day there's something going on. We, we, we walked into george's office this morning and he was looking at uh, an article on something about environmental dna can be extracted from the air like there's these crazy ideas happening every day that we're you know we're mm. in such a time when science is progressing so so quickly yeah well they just flew the first helicopter on mars really yeah yesterday oh. didn't you know that no, no? is that I is mean, that um elon musk's company no what? no no they do, because they dropped the lander on mars about two months ago there's a big one the size of vw and they had a helicopter underneath it and they had a swatch of material taken from the wright brothers first plane on the <laughs> helicopter and it's been sitting there for three, three or four weeks, and they just really? actually sent the command to it yesterday, and it took off up to three meters, whizzed around, and went back down again. Because they're going to use that to low-level surveillance on Mars. Cause, so it's all fascinating. Did you know that? I did not I know, know that, that. The gravity and everything would be different. Well, that's, yeah, the, that, that's the thing I'm trying to think of, like the actual construction of it. So that's right. it wouldn't need to be, obviously the gravity is significantly less on Mars. Yeah, but um, the air's thinner as well. So they had to design the whole thing right. so that it, uh, and it's using solar cells. So you, yeah, actually the air's, the atmosphere's a lot thinner. So you might yeah. actually, you might actually need, even though you have less gravitational pull yeah. resulting in, so you would think you would need less lift-off force, but then yeah. when you compensate that with the lack of actual atmospheric particles, yeah. then you might actually need more of a propulsive lift, yeah. so that's why it's probably harder, taking yeah. them so long, and they may only be able to hover at a, like a low altitude. Yeah, well, they, take, they took it up three to three metres. Meters. Three metres. Three yeah. metres, and then they're going to go a bit higher next time and just see how they can go. So you see, there's all this interesting stuff. Well, yeah, who, who would have thought, like, 50 years ago, now we're having, 
you know, interplanetary travel, air, air, air space travel. You could classify I mean, that as air space travel. 50 years ago, we did have man on the moon as well. Right. Yeah, true, true. Oh, sorry, all right, all right, let's say 500 yeah. years ago, but oh, we thought okay. we were at the center of... Oh, no, no, no. 500 years ago, we were, we were actually pretty good. Like yeah. 1900s is when the scientific revolution really started. Yeah. So before we run out of too much time, I wanted to talk about, just because it's very relevant with the whole COVID thing going on now, is vaccinations. Yeah. And we learned about vaccines mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. And like, the, George can tell us a bit more about the idea of, of what a vaccine does and how it triggers an immune response. Because mm. that's, I know that you still know that. Oh yeah, well, I'm sure. still doing that at the moment. Yeah, it's in the HSC health. syllabus. Yeah, sort of thing. So w- would you maybe explain a little bit, just for the people who are, then there's a lot of speculation around vaccines, how Especially they can... Especially misinformation. Yeah. There's a lot of misinformation. A lot of misinformation. Yeah, I know. But Pro- what does it do fundamentally in terms of triggering an immune response? Well, it's sort of, uh, it's your immune system recognises um, antigens, foreign particles. Mm. So it's like recognising something which is foreign to the body. And then the immune response then fires up to produce antibodies to neutralise the antigen that you've got. But the problem is that the immune response can take a couple of weeks to produce a certain number of antibodies Mm. against the particular antigen. That's if you haven't been vaccinated. So when you get vaccinated, you are then giving a non-dangerous antigen to your immune system so it can recognise the surface pattern and then speed up the response. So it cuts the response time down to two or three days or less than that. And then the overwhelming production of antibodies neutralises that antigen. Yes. So that's basically what it's doing. So with COVID, because we haven't been exposed to it, our body then reacts against the COVID uh, antigen but by the time we, our immune system then is able to generate enough antibodies, COVID has done its damage. It's like polio. Hmm. If you come in contact with a polio virus and you haven't been vaccinated, you're in trouble. You'll be paralysed within a week or so hmm. because your immune system will take that length of time to start producing antibodies. But if you've been vaccinated, within two days you get a massive antibody production, and then you. Just Nails of COVID. Mm. There's a very good video on um, YouTube video on the last iron lung. There's a guy. He is a lawyer, yep. and he was not. Have you seen it? It's with the negative pressure chamber for yeah. him to breathe. Yeah, and he has to. He's, he's, his whole life has been in that. Yeah, because oh, he was he was contracted polio about a month before the vaccines came online. Oh. Right. And he wants to, he did a YouTube video on that to talk about the need for vaccinations against diseases like polio. He's a lawyer. He can't walk, can't, he just wow. isn't an iron lung and he's led somewhat to normal life. And the problem was that the iron lung he's got is so old, they've lost the technology or how to fix it. He had to find um, engineers and mechanics oh. to actually fix it because um, to keep it working. Right, it's different. Because he just, just has his head sticking Yeah, his like head that. was just, just sticking out. And then yeah. Just the lungs, just just the pressure yeah. just makes him breathe. That's right, just pressure. Yeah, wow. it's just pressure chamber. And uh, he was wanting to uh, just use that on a YouTube video to, so, to show the people, uh, you know, if you 
vaccinations, if you stop vaccinating against polio or something like that. This can happen. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I think the, the main idea that I got out of learning about vaccinations is that people think you're getting the virus injected into you. That's, it's not necessarily the case. You get what's actually introduced to your body mm. via the um, the needle is like a weak, a weak or an attenuated yeah. is the formal name, which yeah. just means it's either dead or like has been significantly um, reduced Wait. in its like mm. parasitism or not, not parasitism, um, virulence, virulence, virulence yeah. mm. by like maybe heating or something. And you introduce this weakened strain so that your body can recognize, as George says, that surface protein, which is essentially a pattern with the enzymes that the body mm. can associate um can recognize it, it has the ability to distinguish between its own cells and the foreign cells um, by the variation in this surface protein which is that that's pretty amazing in itself um, well it's very interesting because um with the immune system is so complex that it can recognize all these different patterns on that they've just discovered a whole range of bacteria from deep in the ocean which they've brought up which they think might be 10 million years old still living and uh, when they introduce them to immune cells the immune uh, the immune cells like the T cells they're the ones that recognize the antigens they don't recognize the um, coatings on any of these bacteria at all wow. which they're saying indicates that these bacteria have been isolated for maybe a hundred million right, years. Right, like outdated the outdated, human. Outdated, the, but they still are, they're still living, but the, the immune, our immune system doesn't There's no correlation it. to there's humans because no, there's that time difference. they just discovered that a couple of weeks ago. So wow. there's all this stuff here which the immune system doesn't recognise as being foreign, which is crazy. But I think a lot of people are confused with vaccinations because when you make the vaccine up, they often have to use um, a carrying agent, things like that. It's like when you go back to Edward Jenner and the smallpox vaccines that he produced, people thought that when you were vaccinated against smallpox, because you used cowpox, mm. as a, people then develop into cow. <laughs> what you mean? Yeah, that, that was, but that from an educational, from a, yeah, that's, that's just people thought along those lines. And I even heard um, there was a guy that used to work here as a lab technician, he had two master's degrees. And he was dead against vaccinations because he said the the carrying agent for the vaccine came from animals and he didn't want that put in his body because of that. Which was really weird because he was into herbal medicine and alternative alternative. Yeah, well, by that logic he shouldn't eat any food that's associated with animals. Well that's right, animals. Just, I just found the whole thing totally bizarre. He shouldn't have insulin or anything that's been artificially produced yeah. as well. <laughs> well he, his kidneys were failing, he had high blood pressure and his kids all had asthma but he wouldn't let them take any medication Gee. for asthma. You just um, wonder, like, we talk about the uneducated people who think that cowpox can induce symptoms yeah. of being a cow. Yeah. But then you also talk about, like, sophisticated and educated people who have two master's degrees, and they still have the level of ignorance to, you know, just forego something which is such scientific validity as yeah. vaccinations has, yeah. which is just amazing. I just find it amazing having a chat conversation with him, and um, he came from Bangladesh, but not that that means anything, but... Uh, he was quite um, dead against vaccinations, totally, which I find bizarre yeah. for somebody with that. I mean, you can understand some people being anti-vaxxers because of the problems of allergic reactions, yes. but then the, the percentage of allergic reactions to a vaccine is far less damaging than it is to actually contract the disease. Mm. 
And my doctor once said to me, if you've got people who are anti-whooping cough vaccines, take them to the nearest hospital when there's a whooping cough epidemic. Take them into the room where all the kids are coughing their lungs up and say, this is what happens if you don't vaccinate against whooping cough. Yeah. So people just get these weird ideas into their brain, and uh, especially from um, the personalities on television and things like that. Yeah. Who love to... Yeah. Uh, so I think they stall their ideas and their notions about this, and people think because they're high profile people, lots of money, you obviously have to uh, listen to them. Follow Whereas the, the scientific community the is totally disregarded. You've got to follow the leader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think right now the general sentiment around vaccines is just how shortly they developed the vaccine, like the short amount of time. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. The clinical testing period is what the clinical the, testing period being. is very short. Yeah, that's I mean, the problem. I yeah. think the U.S. government actually just waived that period. Yeah. Just mm-hmm. so they could get to the bot, like stop yeah. it before. But the thing is, like some vaccines, the technologies are different, and there's newer technologies at the moment, like especially with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines mm-hmm. with the mRNA technology. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. Yeah. Is uh, why I think just the technologies being different and how fast they developed it just shows why some vaccines are showing, you know, mm-hmm. adverse effects such as blood clots and... Mm-hmm. That's right, like yeah. That. Because as you said, as you said you, the clinical testing period was waived virtually because yeah. most of these things take years before you bring them online. Yeah, no matter how advanced our technology is, you still mm-hmm. require an adequate clinical testing of period. Course. No matter if we think that we've got... Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I saw, like, these... Um, computer simulations where we could literally recreate the entire virus its structure we know everything about it but it doesn't it doesn't kind of measure with the necessity of a clinical testing period where people of different uh, immune responses you know like i've got a friend who had the second um vaccine and she's been in the emergency department for the last four or five days we don't know if it's directly attributed to the vaccine but it's it is you know a very risky thing it's just because the world is so fixated on getting back to normal and we all are but it seems like it seems like a bit of a unnecessary price to pay just you know with well, the potential true. consequences it's just it's just because there's, too, there's so many variables and you yeah. have to try to work out the variables when you're dealing with all these vaccines and with people because each person's in different genetically in a sense yeah. and have different sensitivity to different things so that's why you need to have these large-scale tests they go on for three or four years before you can actually then um, come to a conclusion, a statistically valid conclusion, and we haven't got that with these vaccines at the moment, but um, which is unfortunate. But the the good thing about the coronavirus is it's going to get us ready for the next one, the next yeah, pandemic right. that's going to come in, because it's guaranteed within the next 20 years there's going to be someone else popping up, Yeah. particularly with the fact of increased population size and the density of populations and the proximity to animals yeah. particularly in Asia where you've got pig swine flu mm. and you've got bird flu and you've got viruses mutating and jumping between species and then it's just a matter of time before another nasty one pops up yeah you get I think we need to remember that we're not the first people doing counter a pandemic and we can still be productive during this period like <laughs> I remember a story Isaac Newton who's a very famous physicist Everyone should know that. I don't need to explain that. But during one of the pandemics, uh, I forget what it was, but he stayed at home and you know developed the fundamental theory of calculus. Yeah. Just so we can still be productive, and it's happened in the past, and they got past that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just need to, I don't know, kind of 
find a way to deal with it in a way that's not going to be threatening to other, you know, like sending out a vaccine that's yeah, not that's tested. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, let's let's quickly. I want I want to talk. We mentioned um, genetics there. I mm-hmm. wanted to quickly talk about um, a bit of recombinant DNA technology. Mm-hmm. I remember when you first taught us that mm-hmm. I, I was astounded that you could integrate different pieces of DNA into mm-hmm. a different organism in order to get a particular trait expressed. That's right. For example, like um, I remember you used an example of like luminosity. I think in a goldfish where you can. Oh integrate the DNA corresponding to light production yeah. and then have this goldfish which is Glowing radiating dark. red in the dark. Yeah, yeah. So how, if it's so accessible to recombine DNA, why don't we just get like all of the best possible human characteristics and traits integrated into one circular plasmid and then just replicate that throughout our body and we'll be this this superior being is that, po- is, that, is, that uh, is that even clinically possible or what well you should look at go and watch Blade Runner the movie is that about that that's what that's what Blade Runner is about oh really yeah that's that's the whole thing with Blade Runner they ended up uh, creating these artificial people artificial people through genetic manipulation and they were perfect physically mentally uh, superior strength but they were worried about them, and then they put a suicide gene in. So when they reach the age of 30, they die. Oh. No, that's the, the whole theme between Blade Runner. And what happened with Blade Runner was that you end up getting a stratification of society because you get all these people who have had the plasmids and whatever it is becoming superior intellectually, uh. and then you have the rest of us. And so society then becomes... Oh, there's this imbalance. Imbalanced. And so... There must have been a war with Blade Runner, and what they had, what they were doing, was they had detectives who were trying to find out the synthetic, identify the synthetic people and killing them, and that's what the theme behind the whole thing was. So they made synthetic prostitutes, synthetic miners, synthetic warriors, and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, and it was all they were all perfect, but they were far superior to humanity. Right. So you then have an ethical issue coming up there, don't you? We had a bit of a, uh, a cut there. Let's. I think we were. Well, we're talking about Blade Runner. I know that. Um, and then we we're talking about CRISPR, the CRISPR? technology. Yeah. The technology. We, we yeah. were essentially talking about why could we not make a superior human being? Yeah. Human complex. Is there a limiting kind of factor so that to the complexity of like a superior being? Like you could probably never, com- never fulfill complete you know, superiority in, in a perfect, perfect kind of sense because we don't understand, as you were talking about, like the introns and, right. and all these additional it's cofactors of, yeah. of, of the genetic system. But it is an interesting notion. You know, I think recombinant D- DNA technology has been, uh, you know, the forefront of a lot of biotechnology for the last few years. Mm-hmm. And it's the reason why we can do a lot of important things to do with like food production and like exhibiting growth hormones that we have bigger um i think it's salmon you know for example salmon production we get bigger salmons and more quantity of food golden rice as well golden rice yeah and then there's the whole dilemma with as you said playing playing god Mm -hmm. you know like who gets to who gets to determine the the genetic component yeah design artificially created babies like what what are your thoughts on all that stuff in dictating playing god essentially I don't really know. I just think it's going to be... Uh, that all comes down to um, um, ethics and what society wants. So that's the problem with society, is that you need to have people educated in the basics of all this mm. so that you can make informed decisions 
later on as to whether this is a good idea or not. And that's basically what it comes down to. And that's where I find it a bit frustrating because a lot of people get upset about all these ideas but they don't have the basic foundations to enable them to make uh, constructive decisions and things like that. Yeah, right. But, the, but there's some... I mean, they dug up bacteria which were 10 million years old, uh, 100 million years old, I think I was talking about that, from rocks. And these things are still living. They got them from one continent and another continent and the bacteria were genetically identical. The genome sequences were the same. And they're trying to work out how can these things survive? Well, they know they can survive. Mm. And, but there's been no real changes to their DNA over, over that long period of time. And these are bacteria which were together <coughs> prior to the continent separating. Right. That's how long. And so what they're doing is they're looking at the genetic sequence of them, trying to figure out what aspects of their DNA are preventing mutations from occurring. So there's something which is fascinating, because you can get something which can then repair mutations in uh, DNA better than what's happening at the moment. There's uh, a lot, of, and these things are slow, uh, are still living from um, rocks which were four or five kilometres deep. They've got them for a couple of months ago, and they just compared them from mines in America and mines in Africa and the genomic sequence is the same, and there's no wow. way the bacteria could get there from the surface uh, present day, Yeah. and they're just living at a very low metabolic rate. It's the same as these ones that come from under the mud, which they dig up, which the mud's, say, two million years old, and they bring the bacteria up, and they cultivate them, and they start growing straight away, and they've been isolated from wow. the surface for 10 million years, and they were probably still living in the mud. And the, the whole, biology is getting really quite complex and quite fascinating oh, yeah, it would. because you think of the potential that you've got in all these things if you take Craig Venter who he was the guy that sequenced his own genome yeah. and he actually took bacteria took the DNA out of them and then he constructed his own DNA the DNA he wanted the base sequences and put them back in the bacteria to theoretically create a synthetic organism didn't he wow. and it's still surviving it's unbelievable. So there's your potential for all these things. So. Yeah, I think that the bacteria that there's a lot of um a lot of organisms like including including variations of amphibians have the ability to like lower their metabolic rate. A lot yeah. of a lot of frogs go into essentially what's a minimum metabolic yeah. rate required yeah. to maintain life and they can stay underground not moving for thirty plus 50 plus years yeah. where they just lower their metabolic rate they don't require the input of food or nutrients and then as soon as they want when the conditions become optimized they can just spring back into right. existence imagine if humans had the ability to lower their metabolic rate and well, on, your, look, on your holidays you can just yeah. literally t- <laughs> turn well, it off into that, you take space travel that's what they're talking about yeah. with space travel isn't it yeah true so now you look at the genome sequences of tardigrades Oh, tardigrades, Everyone's favourite water bears. That's yep. right. The electron microscope images people think are so cute, but like... Yeah, cute, but they'll survive us. They'll survive us. If you look at the radiation, temperatures, pressure and all that, they can survive them. Yeah, bit. ridiculous. And it's crazy. Mm. And I guess that just comes down to like, you know, naturally selective pressures and these bacteria that mm. you would think that they would 
be different now after looking for, for being separated for so long because they're in different environments and then you would think that there'd be different naturally selected pressures which mm-hmm. would create different things but they clearly have this um, trait which is preventing mutations and a mutation doesn't have to be bad like mm. we, we think it mutations but a mutation can just be for example that the temperature that one bacteria's bacterial species in is warmer so it develops a a better way of releasing that heat or something like that. That's a mutation. But they've maintained the same genome sequence, which means there's been minimal mutations. Mm-hmm. So to integrate that into, like, for example, we can, if we knew what was going on, we could prevent the mutations that cause, like, um, what's right. a... What's a anything. Down a, syndrome. Yeah, anything down syndrome. Like, yeah. So that's, that's where it's all going, because people are finding more and more information. Because basically you're still an ATGC sequence, aren't you? Yeah. We are a four. We are a four-code organism. Mm-hmm. They've even made organisms up uh, gene sequences with more than four codes, haven't they? You've read about that at some stage. What, what like synthetic nucleotides? Yeah, synthetic yeah. nucleotides, and add them in and wow. see what happens. Well, will you just increase your number of permutations, like by a factor of? Yeah, that's right. That's because the ATGC sequence. That yeah, that yeah. Like it's, you start to get into statistics here, yeah. permutations and combinations yep. of proteins. You then start, if you add some more sequences in there, synthetic ones, then who knows? Yeah, well, there are, if you have ATGC, that's four mm-hmm. possible combinants. So that means you have um, four factorial, which is four times three mm-hmm. times two times one, which is 26 possible ways of rearranging yeah. ATGC. Yeah. But then you we're talking about proteins which are coded for by not ATGC they're like hundreds and thousands of repeated variations units so you look at the permutations you can have and then to add another two synthetic nucleotides so ATGC Whatever. XY yeah. you immediately everything just goes quadruple ballistic. that that's right so there you go that's, that's crazy the, that's, that's cool crazy to think future about that. for you guys to sort of it haven't you oh, I'm not sorting that that's you <laughs> so Harsh is doing medicine for those people who um, didn't do it. Do it quickly. Brief us on what you're doing. Oh, we're we're running out of time. We got two minutes. So, two minutes. Oh. Um, uh, well, I'm currently studying um, biochemistry at the moment, and um, a lot of the themes that we've been describing here, the vaccine, um, you know, recombinant DNA technology, is just some of the concepts I'm trying to explore and you know develop my knowledge into, mm. to, you know, advance the world. Of course. The ethical dilemmas are, are what we're really focusing on and trying to, as George said, educate the people on how it can be used for good. But if you use it overly, like in Blade Runner, it's it can be something that can basically destroy the world, or, or not the world, but destroy humanity. Yeah, sections of the world. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's, it's a crazy future, but it's something that has such high application for the world. Like, you could make, you could cure diseases such as cancer and... Mm you know, HIV, AIDS and all that kind of stuff with this, you know, DNA technology that it, it just brings, it opens a wide horizon of possibilities for us in science and biomedicine. Yeah, we need, a, we need to That's moderate how we go about distributing that kind of technology instead of using it for, like, reinforcing power or, like, causing divisions in society yeah. like the movie mm-hmm. did. That's why they have committees, ethical committees, where you can't experiment on human embryos, and that's why that Chinese scientist ended up going to jail. Yeah, because they're not, you're not supposed to be gene editing human embryos, and that's what he did. Wow. And then he talked about it, silly him, and he, the whole world collapsed on top of him. Probably so looking for wider praise for his work. Mm-hmm. But. 
Yeah. But that's the thing. That Honestly, what he did was ethically wrong. Yes. But scientifically now we valid. have something that to you know watch and observe yeah. and see it's what scientifically happens. Scientifically valid, but morally wrong. Morally, that's, yeah, that's that's an I have another example of that. Concept. Um, lithium is a psychoactive salt that can be used to treat mental disorders. I know yeah. that the this was discovered in the seventies or, or a few decades ago, and with lithium. And this links back with the vaccine and stuff that we just discussed. Lithium, we don't know the mechanism of how it really works in treating these sorts of mental illnesses. But in the testing, the, per the person who discovered that it worked actually tested it on himself, which is another ethical thing that... <laughs> at least he tested it before he tried, but lithium, we now know after testing that it has... You know, it's a, it's a toxic chemical. It's a toxic compound that can, you know, lead to kidney failure and stuff like that. So that's why there is a reason for sentiment to be careful around vaccines. But overall, the theme that should be portrayed is that with this sort of technology, the risks usually outweigh the negatives. Yeah, we need to test it, right? Yeah, because and you have your clinical testing procedures which need to be followed <coughs> fairly rigorously. And yeah. uh, then you do your statistical analysis and look at blood clotting. Yeah, especially with the AstraZeneca vaccine right now. It's mm -hmm. And possibly the Russian vaccine, all the stuff that's been under the yeah. rug right now that we don't yeah, know well, about. There's, there's different applications. Like, for example, you mentioned lithium. Lithium's more well-known as uh, the metal that's integrated to a lot of like mobile devices and stuff mm -hmm. because lithium is very easy um, electron harvesting properties so it's got a low kind of ionization which means it'll lose its electrons which then the flow of electrons gives us electricity and stuff so there's a whole just applying technology to our understanding of something like a, a one of the most simple or well, the second most simple element in third third most simple element in the entire universe we can translate that now into drugs. So our technology that we're developing for vaccinations and stuff does not have to be limited to, to that. It can be used for so many different things when we start to understand these yeah, properties. And that just gives us an understanding as how science and you know the world around us can be appreciated. Yeah. And oh, the world around us. I like exploited it. You mentioned the podcast or, name. Yeah, well done. We never mentioned the that at the start. And fix problems that are occurring in society and in science. Good job mentioning the world around us, I yeah, like that's it. That's what it's all about. I mean, that's, it's up that's to you what guys. it's all around. All about the world around us. Yeah. We've got to, okay. you know. So you guys have to be society. the emissaries of the future. Oh. <laughs> not seriously. <laughs> I mean, it's it is. It's not it's wrong. It's true. It's true. true but you have to then go be able to go out there and pass the word on yeah. to, to other people to inspire them to be involved in and, various and things. And the cycle continues. <laughs> That's what it's all about. If you can increase uh, people's understanding, then you get to a better place in society or society yeah. becomes better. Yeah, it is cool to think <laughs> that like George initially was the one that motivated me and, and, and probably you to get definitely. into science. Definitely. But even for me, it was like I wasn't even really remotely interested in science. I took biology because I kind of had to fill a unit. And then that... that started a lifelong I sucked you in exactly you sucked me in George is like the black hole of tape <laughs> he just so and that but that led to I, I could not have pictured my life back three or four years ago of a science but now I, I couldn't picture any, anything else I don't want anything more than to really enjoy understanding my you know the things that go on around me and I, I have to 
take this time to thank thank you. I know I've done it in the past, but Pleasure. Mm-hmm. for, for mm-hmm. In, in, instilling that scientific curiosity in, in me and you, I assume yeah, I yeah. extend that thanks to you. Ex- yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's great. It's, it's a pleasure to have uh, had you guys in the class and to um, yeah to see the re- results and that you're yeah. going on to pass it on. If you could, that's where it's frustrating that you can't get to a lot of people. There's only a certain number of people who actually yeah. the penny drops. The rest of them, it's just. Yeah, but anyway, right. that's life, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the problem we have to overcome in the world around us. <laughs> oh, stop it. Stop it. Uh, all right, well, we're coming up on 45 minutes. So we've, um, George has got a, a class to teach and he'll, he'll uh, you know, be imparting his knowledge onto hopefully the next generation next of Next generation. Of we're scientists. dealing with uh, the new biology syllabus. Exactly. He's, he's enjoying the new oh, biology no, syllabus. The new biology syllabus was great. No, I didn't have to do it. I'm lucky. I did it. So... Honestly, the, the hormone stuff really comes back to yeah, well, you. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Right? The pregnancy hormones and all that stuff oh, and re- sexual reproduction and yeah, fragmentation. It, it comes back to haunt you. Like it, it does. It haunted Jake and it haunted me. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, I knew it, yeah. But, uh, but still, anyway, it's what we have to do. So yeah. We got two band sixes last year, which I was pleased oh, with. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. In, in bio. In bio. Sunny got one. Oh, it's- Sunny, Sunny finally still. got a band six, and one of the other girls got a band six good as well, him. which was really good. So uh, I was pleased with that. That's so mm. good. So th- that's pretty much it from us, and and thanks obviously to George for taking the time. I think we could talk for so long. I think George, we, we may need to come back for a part two. <laughs> uh, if 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 George lets us back, yeah, that's fine. We'll definitely have a part two. Yeah. I, I'd like to touch on um a bit of stuff on um, evolutionary theory and stuff. I think it'd be cool to talk about gradualism and punctuated equilibrium, mm-hmm. which are the theories that govern, you know, how we, how animals and life have, and humans have progressed yeah. Yeah. and get George's ideas on that. Um, but again, thanks, George. Zahasha, thanks for Thank joining you, us. Thank and you, uh, if, you're, if you're listening, make sure to uh, follow the podcast. And if you have any questions that you'd like to ask George at the next um, round two, if mm-hmm. he lets us back, um, email us um, at uh, I think the email is in the description of the of the podcast so email questions to George and um, that's all thanks that's for listening all.